Hi, I'm Eric Ludi, and this is the Bravehearted Voices podcast. In this podcast, we are featuring sermons that deeply stir us toward Jesus Christ and toward living fully for His glory. In hearing this powerful collection of communicators from the past 100 years, it is my desire that you would be stirred to live lives fully given to Jesus Christ and to discover a Christianity that actually works. Uh, if you have your Bibles this morning, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4, I mean Ephesians chapter 3, and I've been slowly working through the book of Ephesians, and some of you probably say slowly is an understatement, but uh, we've been working through Ephesians, and I think the last time I was here um, in March, uh, we were looking at a section which is a part of the prayer in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14 through 19, and what I want to do this morning um, is look at the doxology in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20 and 21. Uh, so what, what Paul is doing is he's, he's been given this great anthem and, and just been speaking these tremendous words, and he's wrapping up this section, which is the first three chapters of Ephesians. And as he gets to this part, he's, he's given this final prayer, and coming right out of the prayer uh, is this doxology, uh, if you will. And uh, this is what it says. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly, above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus, to all generations, forever and ever and ever and ever. Amen. Let me just read it one more time. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be the glory in the church by Christ Jesus, to all generations, Forever and ever. Amen. Uh, this is not the first time that Paul's been talking about the power of God in the book of Ephesians. Uh, in fact, he's been, it seems like it's the undercurrent theme uh, throughout his entire book. And uh, if you'll just bear with me, I want to kind of play with this and kind of walk you through some of these other passages where Paul is talking about the power of God. Uh, the first time this word shows up uh, is in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19. And it's actually in his first prayer that he's praying to those in Ephesus. But this is what Paul says. He says, I pray that you would know what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power. That what Paul is saying is, oh, I just pray that you would somehow be able to grasp. I know it's impossible. I know that wrapping your mind around the power of God is indescribable. It's impossible. But I want you to have this grasping. I want you to somehow get a hold of the power of God in your life and in the world today. And what he does is he uses four specific, distinct, different Greek words for the word power. Isn't that fun? And uh, just just for kicks and giggles, uh, let me just try and give them to you. Uh, One of the words there in uh, in our passage is the word iskis. Uh, Iskis has the idea of dominion, control, sovereignty, power. Uh, It's the idea of a king sitting upon a throne. And you realize that, or you recognize that Jesus has that kind of power. That he is the king of kings and lord of lords and he's sitting upon the throne on high. In fact, we can never, we will never have this kind of power over God. You can't back God into a corner. You can't twist his arm behind his back. Why? Because he has the position of control, power, sovereignty, and dominion. Isn't that neat? I like that. Another word there is the word iskis. And uh, iskis is this idea of resource. Or ability. Uh, the illustration that I often use around here is, uh, you may not know this, um, 
Ben doesn't often like me to share this, but Ben, if you didn't know, Ben can bench press 500 pounds. I, I know you're all shocked. Uh, I didn't think so either, but it's, it is possible. And, and what the idea is, it's not that he's bench pressing at this very moment, but he has the oh, resource and the ability, right? Now, the moment that he walks over to the bench press and sits there and just goes, whoa, 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 with 500 pounds, right? He's taken the iscus, the oh, and is literally flowing out and demonstrating the iscus, which is the word dunamis. So dunamis is, the, is this dynamic, overwhelming power which is the demonstration that you can actually physically see or, or that you can experience, which is showing casing the oh, iscus. Does that confuse anybody? So God has this overwhelming, oh, which is demonstrated through this overwhelming movement of his power. Uh, the word there, energia, is where, it's like our word energy. It's this flow, it's this movement kind of an idea. And uh, what Paul is saying is, here's, here's, here's the picture. Here's God seen upon his throne. He's in this position of overwhelming power, control, and sovereignty. You can't push him into a corner. He can't bend his arm behind his back, which is great news in my opinion. But God also has his overwhelming, whoa. And he wants to take that, whoa, and literally flow that out into your world and demonstrate his resource and ability in your, in your life and your world, which is the dunamis. You tracking? Just checking. Now, you ask me, well, how big is the dunamis? Well, I mean, I've got some big situations in my life. I've got some circumstances that seem utterly impossible. I mean, so if God's going to do a movement, if he's going to somehow work something in my life, is his dunamis capable of handling my situation? Now, here's what's neat. The dunamis is only limited by the iscus. Meaning, if, if Ben only has the, whoa, the bench press 500 pounds, then he can't come over here and go, ah, with 550 pounds. He doesn't have the iscus. When you think about God, do you realize that God has unlimited, oh, he has unlimited resource and ability, which means then that his, oh, is unlimited. Which means that any circumstance, any problem, any situation in your life, he is more than capable. Oh, isn't that good? I think that's amazing. Now, you, look up, you walk up to Paul and you say, Paul, all right, I get it. makes sense to me. Would you give me an illustration of this power of God? Paul goes, ah, I'm going to give you two of them. In fact, it was really fascinating. As I was studying through chapter 3, he actually sneaks in a third example. Uh, let me just give them to you really quick. So he gives three examples of this overwhelming demonstration of the power of God. The first one is the life of Jesus. What he says in, in verse 20 down to verse 23 in, in chapter 1 is here's Jesus, deader than a doornail. I mean, he's, he's pushing up daisies. He's food for worms. I mean, he's dead. Dead, dead. And God literally reaches his hand into the physical deadness of Jesus and yanks Jesus from physical death and brings him into physical life. Well, what would you call that? An overwhelming demonstration of the power of God. I can't do that, can you? And God's power is demonstrated when God only raised Jesus from the dead and brought him into life. But it's not, it just doesn't stop there. He then takes Jesus and elevates him into this position in the heavenly realms and seats him at the right hand of the Father 
which is far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come, and places all things underneath his feet. It's a demonstration of the power of God. And then he says in chapter 2, hey, let me tell you, you are also a demonstration of the power of God. Me? Yes, you! Well, how am I a demonstration of the power of God? And Paul says, hey, you were dead. I mean, you were dead, dead. You're food for worms, pushing up daisies. Not physically, spiritually. And just as God reached his hand into the physical deadness of Jesus and yanked a physically dead Jesus into physical life, God reaches his hand into your spiritual deadness and yanks you from spiritual deadness into spiritual life. And if that wasn't good enough, guess what he does? He then takes you and elevates you into this position in the heavenly realms, sits you smack dab in the person of Jesus, which is a position, by the way, far above all principality, power, might, and dominion, every name that is named, and places all things underneath your feet, not because you're special, not because you're amazing, but because you're seated in Jesus. And because when you're in Jesus, everything that's going on in his life is now happening in your life. It's a demonstration of the overwhelming power of God. So you have this demonstration, which is Jesus. Then you have this demonstration, which is me. And later in chapter 3, Paul says, do you know what? Even my life is a demonstration of the power of God. And what he begins to say is, I am an apostle to the Gentiles. And do you know how radical that would have been? And as some of you have been around when I, when I was going through chapter 2, but Jews just, they despised Gentiles. I mean, they hated the Gentiles. One of my favorite quotes that I found was, in a Jewish mind, the only reason why God created the Gentiles was because God needed the Gentiles to be the fuel for the fires of hell. Ah. Ah, isn't that encouraging? You know who the Gentiles are, by the way, right? Us. <laughs> that in the Jewish mind, I mean, they just despised anybody who wasn't Jewish. And here is Paul. He's a Pharisee. Uh, he, he is, he is well-learned. He he's well-trained. He had all the right teachers. He has all the right background. He has all the right education. He has all the right... And yet God chose a Pharisee, a Jew of Jews, to go and minister to the very people that he despised. Paul says that is a demonstration of the power of God. That the very people that I hated and just couldn't stand, and all I thought that God could use them for was, was for hell. And here I am being the minister. I'm the one washing their feet. I'm the, I'm the apostle to the Gentiles. It's a demonstration of the power of God. So look at our passage. Paul says, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us. What Paul is saying is there is a power stirring within us. Well, what's the power? It's the dunamis. That God is wanting to demonstrate himself through our lives. And what I would just, man, I've just been pondering this over and over and over. But wouldn't it be neat if I was a demonstration of the power of God in my world? That when someone looked at me, they didn't just see me, they saw God. Why? Because they saw his movement and flow and his tone and his words through my life. And Paul is saying, there is this power of God that is working within you. 
And to him who is able to go exceedingly abundantly beyond all of that, according to this, this power. Well, what's this power? Do you realize what we're talking about is this infilling of the Holy Spirit in your life? In fact, uh, 30 times in Ephesians chapters 1 through 3, Paul uses the phrase or something similar to this idea of your position is in Christ. That my location is never ever to get up from the person of Jesus. I am to be seated smack dab in the middle of who he is. Uh, Colossians chapter 1, and, and you have this memorized, but Colossians 1.27. To them, God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery. Well, what's the mystery? Well, it's Christ in you, the hope of glory. Do you realize that what God is wanting to do is really take himself and, and his life and really so fill you with his presence, his spirit, that he becomes the demonstration. He is demonstrating himself through your life to the world around you. Now, I want you to look at this idea in our passage. Paul says, now to him who is able, speaking about God, who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to this power that works within us. Uh, the word they're able, God is able, it's very similar to the word dunamis. Uh, but the idea is it's to be able to have power, to be capable, it's able to do something. Now, I know you know this, but I'm going to say it anyway. Do you realize that our God is able? I don't think you actually understand it. Because if you understood it, you probably couldn't, be stay, you couldn't stay seated. I'm not saying you have to run the aisles with white hankies, but I'm just, you're just going to have to like be bouncing or something. Because do you realize that our God is just, he's able. And what I mean by that is, he is capable. He is, has the power. He can do something. You guys are just faking it. But our God is able. And you know what? I love this idea that it's not that God is just able. Our God loves impossibilities. It's like he just prefers when things get impossible. Just, just a couple of quick examples. You have this old man and this rather old lady, though I wouldn't tell her that. And uh, God looks at them and says, you are going to have a child. And from your womb, I'm really going to create an entire nation. Do you know how impossible this is at this moment? Here is a woman who is 90 years old who has been barren for 90 years. Here's a man who is 100 years old who has not had any children. And God looks at them and says, guess what? You're going to be pregnant. Now, I don't know about you, and this may be coming out of the context a little bit, but when Sarah laughs, <laughs> it makes sense to me. Why? Because 90-year-old people don't have babies often. Do you realize what, how, the, how the deck was stacked against Abraham and, and Sarah? It was an impossible situation, but it's like God was wanting it to become impossible. He could have given them children when they were 20. But it's almost like, I'm going to make you wait till you're a century old and then give them to you. Because then there'll be no doubt in your mind that it was me and not you. Uh, you had this whole 
entire group of people, slaves in a foreign land. There was no escape. There was no way out. They had to make bricks day by day by day. And lo and behold, their rescuer comes. And their rescuer was an 80-year-old man, not looking like much of a rescuer. And he comes into this place, and he says, let my people go. And the guy in charge says, no. And plague after plague after plague after plague after plague happens, and it seems like it's only hardening the Pharaoh's heart. The situation seemed rather impossible. But do you realize that in God's mentality, in God's mind, he was only smirking, going, just wait, just wait, just watch. Because he is able. The same group of people get to, this, get to this huge body of water, and there's no way to cross, and there's an entire army coming in behind them, and they're trapped, and we don't know what to do. And they had never seen the seas part before. They had never walked on dry land in the middle of what should be wet ground. And yet, with the deck stacked against them, God was able. Uh, a couple months ago, I was rereading uh, the biography of Brother Andrew. And if you don't know the story of Brother Andrew, he was just this, he was this young man, uh, he was a Dutchman, and, and he just had this pressing from God that he was going to go and kind of smuggle Bibles in to some communist countries. And obviously, if he got caught, he could be arrested, he could be tortured or killed. And he had this, uh, this blue little slug bug car. And he would take Bibles, and he would he'd put the Bibles in the, in the trunk, and, and he would drive up to these border crossings, and, and there's the great prayer that he used to pray of, God, you, you once made blind eyes to see, now would you cause seen eyes to be blind? And time and time again, for whatever reason, he could slip through the borders. And once in a while, sure, they'd find a couple Bibles, but, you know, they'd miss, like, the big box, you know, sitting out in front. And uh, one of the particular stories in the book just really just blew my mind. Uh, Brother Andrew was at this border crossing. There's like four cars in front of him. And he noticed that the, the car that's right next to the border crossing, the man was out of the vehicle, and every item in the vehicle was on the ground. And they were literally strip-searching the car to see if there was anything that might be offensive that they can't bring in. And he's like, oh, I feel so horrible for this person. And then obviously he did something wrong to cause them to have suspicion. And they find, eventually, about a half an hour goes by, gets everything back in the car. That guy drives on. The next person comes up, gets out of the car, takes everything out of the car, and Brother Andrew goes, I'm in trouble. And about a half an hour goes by, and they find, eventually get everything back in, and he moves on, and the next car goes up, and so he's the next one in line, and they take everything out of that vehicle. 45 minutes goes by, they put everything in the vehicle, and he's just praying, going, God, I've got hundreds of Bibles, and you know that your people in this country needs these Bibles. And I don't know how you're going to break through but I know that if I, if I start pulling everything out of my car, they will find the Bibles. It is an impossible situation, wouldn't you say? But can I tell you, God is able. And I love the story. He gets up to the border crossing, and the border guard looks at him and just kind of waves him a little bit forward. And he goes, okay, obviously he wants me to move forward a little bit and park his car. So he moves up a little bit, and the border crossing, he had turned his back and was starting to wave the next guy forward. And so he drove just a little bit further, and he looks behind, and they've completely ignored him. And they're focusing on the guy. The guy behind him had to get out of the car and start taking everything out of the car. And he keeps driving a little bit more forward, and he goes around this bin, and he goes, well, I guess they don't need it. And he just flies. And our God is able. How do you explain that outside of the fact that 
And a God who loves impossibilities was allowing the deck to be stacked so he can say, trust me, I am more than capable of handling this situation. Our God is, he's able. I don't know what that does for you this morning, but that just makes me want to bounce. Uh, There's several great definitions of the word faith. Uh, The one that I really have liked uh, recently is this idea. It's invoking the activity of the second party. It's the idea that here I am, the first party. I look at something and I realize it's, it's impossible for me to handle. It's impossible for me to do. And so I look at Jesus, who's the second party, and I literally invite him in and invoke his activity. And it's, Jesus, you need to be involved in this because I can't do it. And I literally throw my entire weight and trust and dependence upon him who is more than able. It's faith. Do we truly have faith in the one who is more than capable? Because more often than not, it seems like we have more faith in ourselves or we have more faith in the work of the enemy than we do in an impossible, loving God. Now, it says that our passage again, Ephesians 3.20, Now, to him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we could ask or think. Think through this. Uh, The word there, ask, means to ask, to beg, to call for, to crave, to desire, or require. To think means to perceive with the mind, to understand, to have understanding, to think upon, heed, ponder, or consider. It's the idea of wrapping your mind around something. So listen to what what Paul is saying. Our God is able, thank you Jesus, our God is able to go above and beyond anything that you can ask for or think about. Just stay quiet, sit in your seats. It's okay. Our God is able to go far beyond anything that you can come up with. So take one of your situations. What is the best case scenario in your life for this situation? Do you realize that God can go beyond that? In fact, he makes your thinking and your asking look like winky-dink drops of water in the bucket of the ocean. I mean, he's just, he's so far beyond that. Anything that you can come up with, saying, God, I mean, I mean, the best thing that I can imagine is this. I mean, could you at least do that? God's like, I, that's like nothing. I can go beyond that. Now, here's what's fun. The word there, exceedingly abundantly above. Here's the passage again. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly. Some translations say super abundantly, which is fun too. Uh, now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly, above all that we ask or think. Uh, this is really neat. So track with me here. Uh, sc- throughout scripture, if things are repeated, it means that there's an emphasis. Uh, for example, if, if a passage says, Jesus himself said, blah, 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 then there's an emphasis on the fact that Jesus is speaking. Because it could have said, Jesus said blank. Instead, it says Jesus himself said blank, meaning that there's an emphasis on the person of Christ. Uh, You realize that we do not serve a God who is holy. Our God is not holy. Our God isn't even holy, holy. Our God is so holy, he is holy, holy, holy. See the triple emphasis? Meaning he's not holy. 
He's holy. Right? So anytime you see something repeated, there's emphasis. That's, that's how it's used in Scripture. Now, in our passage, stay, 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 stay seated. I'm excited. But stay seated. In our passage, remember, God is able, right? Well, what is he able to do? Anything that's above and beyond anything that you can come up with. Now, the word there, exceedingly abundantly above, there is an emphasis. Now, the word there, above, means above (laughs) or beyond, okay? The word there, exceedingly abundantly, is actually one Greek word, but it's one Greek word that has three Greek words pushed together. Does that make any sense? So it's really one Greek word in the Greek, but it's three separate Greek words making up the one Greek word. And I just lost you all. But I want to give you the three Greek words that make up the one Greek word that we translate super abundantly or exceedingly abundantly. One of the Greek words in the super abundantly is the word above. It's the same word as the, the above there, meaning beyond or above. Another one of those words means from or beyond. So we have a beyond, beyond, beyond. Now the third word, this is really fun too. Now the third word, guess what it means? Not quite beyond. Uh, here's, here's the uh, definition. And there, there's a lot of definitions and they were all amazing, so I had to include them all. But this is what the third word means. It means to be exceeding, more than necessary, super added, supremely, abundantly, much more than all, superior, extraordinary, surpassing, uncommon, more remarkable, more excellent, preeminence, advantage. That's a good word. Uh, This particular, this third word, this particular word is also found in just a few different places throughout Scripture. One for note, though, is in John chapter 10, verse 10. Jesus says, the thief comes not... The thief does not come except to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come that they may have life. What kind of life? And that they may have it more exceeding, more than necessary, super added, supremely, abundantly, much more than all, superior, extraordinary, surpassing, uncommon, more remarkable, more excellent, preeminence, and advantage. That is some great life. That the life that he's talking about is not just, well, have it to the full. It's not, well, just, just have it abundantly, like lots and lots of. The idea is it's going to be so far beyond anything you can imagine, so on top of super added and every other superlative you can come up with. That's the kind of life that Jesus gives in, gives in us because that's the kind of life he is. So look at our passage. This is so cool. Now to him who is able. Our God is able. Yes, he is. What is he able to do? Anything that you can think, imagine, comprehend, guess what? It's not that he can just go beyond it, because that's too easy. It's not that he can just go beyond, beyond it. It's that he can go beyond, beyond, over and above, beyond it. There's a quadruple emphasis in the passage. Do you know how far beyond that means? It means beyond. (laughs) I don't know about you, but that's encouraging for me. Because I've got situations, and I've got circumstances, and I've got problems, and I've got people in my life, and I've got... <laughs> Not any of you, of course, but... <laughs> and I look at those situations, and they look like mountains. They look like huge, impossible problems. They, they look like travesties. They look like 
All I see is difficulty and pain and situations and And yet, our God is able. He's able to look at your mountain and look at it. It looks like no more than a little tiny molehill. In fact, he is so far beyond, beyond, over and above, beyond it, that it still looks like flat ground to him. Do you realize that no matter the situation, no matter the circumstance, no matter the problem, no, no matter the whatever it is in your life, that even the best thing that you can come up with, the best solution, the best resolution, the best, Jesus can go beyond, beyond, over and above, beyond it. Doesn't mean he will, but he can. Would you let him? Now, if that is true, why would we fear? Why would we be worried? Why would we be stressed out? Why, why would we have tension in our soul? Why would we give ourselves ulcers? Why, why, would we, why would we have any of those situations in our life? Is it because we don't truly see him as he is? and Maybe we don't trust him enough. Maybe, maybe he's just not that big in our mind. It's been interesting. I've been looking at our culture and my generation. And so often it seems like we have more faith in Satan than we have faith in Jesus. A problem comes into our life, and the first thought in our mind is not, oh, God is so capable. This is nothing. The first thought is, I have no idea. This is horrible. And it's like we emphasize the fact that God can't handle the situation you realize that is putting more faith in the demonic than in Jesus. Uh, here's this problem in my life, and it just seems like it's a huge giant. And like the 12 spies, I look at it and say, I, I'm but a grasshopper in its sight. And, and we go to God in prayer, and we say, God, you do Man, I'm just going through this difficulty, and I'm, I'm going through this situation, and I'm going through this problem. And, and do you realize how big my problem is, God? And do, do you realize how big the giant is in my life? And do, do you realize the problems I'm having? Is that wrong? I don't know. Maybe. Because by doing it that way, you're emphasizing your problem. I know this seems backwards, but what would happen if you had this huge problem that looked like a giant in your life, and instead of saying, oh, God, do you, do you see how big the giant is in my life? What if you would say, giant, do you know how big my God is? Because he is able. Not just able, but he is able to do beyond, beyond, over and above, beyond, all that I can ask or think. So the giants in my life, the problems and the situations and the circumstances and the whole political and the economic problems of our country and all the whatever and whatever whatevers, do you realize that they're probably not that big of a deal in, in God's eyes? So why is it that we don't live different? 
Why is it that I like having my problems? That somehow, when I have my problems, it gives me an opportunity to tell people about my problems. See, we, we like having giants in our life. Wouldn't it be fascinating if we could truly see Jesus as he is, as a God who is able to go beyond, beyond, over and above, beyond, and handle every circumstance and every situation and every problem and every difficulty and every family and every finance and every Because our God is more than able. Why do, why do we live the way we do? Don't you think of someone who truly saw Jesus as the God who, who is more than capable, as a God who can go beyond, beyond, over and above, beyond? Wouldn't you think that, that person could straighten their shoulders and walk with a confidence and a boldness? I'm not talking pride and arrogance. I'm talking a trust and a confidence in their God. That they hit a situation and it's not, oh no, problem. It's, I know this looks difficult. I know this looks impossible. But just watch what God's going to do. That there's an audacity of soul that just rises up and says, I trust Jesus. That I see him in the middle of my problems and, and I realize that he is capable. Do, do you live that way? Is that your tone? Is that your heart? Now, let's take it one step further. Ephesians 3.20 again says this, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus, to all generations forever and ever. Amen. So get the progression. Uh, here is an overwhelming, mighty, powerful God. And he's really taking his, whoa, and he's flowing that in my life, creating this dunamis demonstration of who he is through, in, and through my life. And he takes these impossible situations and through the overwhelming grace and power of who he is, begins to demonstrate his ability in and through my life. That the world sees that God is able because they see him through my life. And it's not that they just see a God who is smallish and weak, they see a God who is able to go beyond, beyond, over and above, beyond. And do you realize that when that takes place, he gets glory? Uh, Verse 21 says, To him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. The word there, glory, uh, when you look it up in the Greek, there is two different uh, emphasis, if you want to say that. Uh, one is what we would commonly think of in terms of glory. It's the majesty, it's the brilliance, it's the splendor of something. But the other word, or the other emphasis on the word glory is it often can be translated opinion or perspective or judgment. Uh, for example, when uh, Satan takes Jesus to the, the uh, basically he's showing him the, the the kingdoms of the world. It says that Satan shows Jesus the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And the idea is not that they have splendor and majesty and, and brilliance. It's that from the perspective of Satan, it was good. 
that Satan is showing Jesus, hey, Jesus, look at the kingdoms of the world. Oh, isn't that amazing? Oh, isn't it phenomenal? Ah, oh, isn't it just incredible? It was his perspective. And Jesus looked at the same thing saying, that's not my perspective. There's, there's this idea of opinion and judgment and perspective. Now, when you look at our passage, uh, that wouldn't make sense. I think it's a reasonable way to understand the passage. That you could say to him, be glory in the church. In other words, it's Jesus' perspective and it's his opinion in the church. Which is a very biblical thought if you think through this. That as the church, as individuals within the corporate body of the church, we are to have the perspective, the judgment, the mind of Jesus. For example, Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. In other words, we are to have the same, and it's not just thinking mind, you understand. It's attitude, it's the entire orientation of your living, and it's the whole makeup of, of what you are. That me as a Christian and we as a church are to have the, the perspective, the mind, the attitude, the, the makeup, which was also in Jesus. In Ephesians chapter 1, it says that Jesus is the head and the, and the body is the church. Or the church is the body. And you realize that whatever is going on in the head is also filtering in and affecting the body. That it's his opinion and his mind and, and his attitude that's affecting the inner, inward body. So I think you can translate it legitimately that way. But it appears that the emphasis in the passage is that Here's this power of God that's being demonstrated and flowing through our lives and creating these expressions of the overwhelming power of God in our life through impossible situations. And when that happens, somehow the world sees that God is able to do beyond, beyond, over and above, beyond what we can even imagine. And when that takes place, do you realize that he receives the glory and the splendor and the majesty and the praise Why? Because the only explanation for our life then is Jesus. Here's an impossible situation in my life. There's no way I can handle it. I'm just, I'm just, I I just know it's impossible. So I lean, I depend, I trust on the God who loves impossibilities and I allow him to demonstrate himself in the middle of my situation and the people around me go, how on earth is that possible? It's not. It's Jesus. And somehow as he begins to demonstrate himself in the impossible situations of my life, he receives the glory because there's no explanation for how it's happening outside of him. Let me give you an example. Here's this man, uh, rebels, the the whole enemy just kind of taking over his land. How he was so scared that he was in this wine press threshing wheat. And God walks up to this young man and says, Gideon, I want you to lead an army for me. And Gideon says, you know, are you sure? Really, really, really sure? Because <laughs> I'm not sure if I'm really sure. And God takes him to this process, and Gideon has his army. And I think there's 30,000 people in this army. It's a pretty decent army. But listen to how big the enemy was. Uh, In Judges chapter 7, verse 12, it says, Now the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east were lying in the valley as numerous as the locusts. We're not talking about the off years of locusts here. We're talking on every 7, 14, whatever it is, years, and all the locusts just come out. We're talking 
the army was so numerous, it just covered the place. It looked like locusts everywhere. Uh, even the camels that they had. It says, and their camels were without number, as the sand by the seashore. Uh, so you have this entire army coming against a little army. How many, how many people were there? I, I don't know. Uh, some scholars suggest upwards of over several hundred thousand people. Either way, we know their camels were numerous, unnumberable, innumerable. And the people were as many as locusts. That's a lot of people. And God looks at the situation and says, Gideon, you have far too many people. God, I apologize to say this to you, but can you count? Because they are without number, and we have 30,000. You have too many. Shrink it down, shrink it down, shrink it down. And Gideon's left with 300 people. We got 300 people going against a couple hundred thousand. Not good odds. But do you know what God says about this whole thing? Uh, Listen to God's uh, statement. It says, And all the people who were with Gideon rose early and set up camp, so that the camp of the Midianites was on the north side of them. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people who are with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel claim glory for itself against me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Do you know why God shrunk them down to 300? Because he wanted to make it absolutely impossible for them to say, we were brilliant. We were muscular. We all looked like Ben Zorns. We, we all can bench press 500 pounds. See, they couldn't say that. You don't win a battle of hundreds of thousands against 300. God says, I need to strip and make it so impossible so that when I give you the victory... Everyone will know that there's a God, of it, God in Israel, that God is still strong, that God is still able, and he can go far beyond, 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 over and above, beyond all that you can even imagine. And I would receive the glory from that, not you. Do you think it's any different in our lives? Don't you think that God wants to do something in and through our lives that is so utterly inexplainable to the world around us, that when they look at our lives, they go, how on earth is that, how is that possible? How how is it you are able to love that individual when they just drive you crazy? How how is it that you are filled with patience when you should be frustrated? How is it that you are filled with joy when you look at your bank account and you're in the hole? How how is it possible that, that there is a trust and an unwavering confidence when you find out that your family's died on the mission field? How how is it possible that that you had addiction after addiction after addiction, and yet suddenly you're free. How is it possible that... Wouldn't it be neat if somehow our lives could be a declaration of the power of God to this world? That somehow what, what people saw in us was not us, they saw Jesus in and through our lives? Wouldn't it be... Wouldn't that just change how, you, how people saw Jesus? If they actually saw him effectual, uh, I mean, working, he, they see it in experience, they see it not just in theory, they, they see it in reality. How would that change your life? Where the problems in your life were no longer just problems, they were, Jesus, I don't know how you're going to get me out of this one, but I trust you. 
I'm going to lean on you. I'm going to depend on you. I'm surrendering. And yes, I'm going to be involved. And yes, I'm going, to be, I'm, going to be, I'm going to participate. This is not just sitting on a couch and letting Jesus push you off of it. This is, God, I'm going to be involved in this thing. But I, I, in and of my own ability, I, I can't do this. So I need the God of the universe who fills my life to begin to produce something in and through me that I can't do myself. I can't have a pure thought life on my own, Jesus. So you've got to somehow come in my mind and begin to produce your thoughts. Jesus, I've got a cold heart. Somehow you've got to come in and give me a softness and a love that is only comes from you. Jesus, there is stuff that comes out of my mouth. Jesus, there's stuff that often doesn't come out of my mouth, but I have in here. There, there's attitudes, there's tones. And, well, are they impossible in your life? Yes. Would you let a God who is able to go beyond, beyond, over and above, beyond all that you ask or think and come in and transform your life? And would you let a God who, who so desperately wants to showcase himself through your life, uh, would you allow a God who, who wants to demonstrate his resource, his ability, his power in and through you? Not so that you look great, not so that you suddenly go, woo, I have this all figured out, but so that your life becomes inexplainable to the world around you. In other words, the only explanation for your life is Jesus, and he receives the glory. Wouldn't it be neat if our lives were merely a praise anthem to Jesus? Wouldn't it be interesting if, if all that just came out of my life was praise and glory and adoration and trumpeting who he is because I'm allowing him to do something through my life that I can't do my own, on my own. So, uh, where are you? Uh, what are you trying to pull off in your own strength and ability and your resource? Uh, what situations in your life do you, do you need a God of impossibilities to come in and just demonstrate himself in? When someone looks at you, can they explain your life away, or is the only explanation for your life Jesus? For the last several months, I've been pondering this idea that it's been, it's been scary almost. But when someone looks at my life, do they truly see the gospel lived out? In other words, if I never spoke to them, and all they did was look at my life, I'm talking not just how I live, I'm talking my inner life, my thought life, what I do when no one's watching. I'm talking the inner part of who I am. If someone could sneak in and look at my inner life, would they be compelled to Jesus? Would they just go, oh, I just see him everywhere. Now, there's a story told of, uh, of a guy named David Livingston. He was a missionary doctor in Africa and there was this newspaper in London that wanted to do a, basically a series of articles on David Livingston. And so they sent this newspaper reporter over to Africa. And it's, in the, it's kind of in the heart uh, of Africa. And so he finally makes his way. He gets off the ship and, you know, takes these little, however he gets there. And, I mean, it's a several-day journey. And finally gets up with David Livingston and spends about a week with him and just kind of sees what he does and just kind of lives with him. And, and he makes his way back. And he, he gets back into London. And they throw this huge party for this newspaper reporter and, 
And in the middle of this big, in the middle of this big party, someone walked up to the newspaper reporter and said, Hey, tell us, what is David Livingston like? And the newspaper reporter said, Oh, it's like he's the real deal. And I would have been compelled to become a Christian had I stayed there but a moment longer. And yet, he never spoke of it once. I'm not saying you don't speak about Jesus, but when someone looks at your life, are they just drawn to Jesus? Do they see the God who is able? Do they, do they see impossibilities as being just, do they, do they see things in your life that are absolutely impossible being handled? And do, do they see victory and triumph? And do they see Jesus through your life? I don't know about you, but God's been proving me in this whole thing, and <laughs> I am lacking. I know God is big, and I know God is marvelous, and I, I know he is strong, and I know he's more than capable, but, you know, it's grand to talk about the fact that the mountains are but like molehills, but, man, when you're facing a mountain, <laughs> it's like it's a mountain. It's not a molehill. Are you kidding me? I don't know what you need this morning, but I need Jesus. I need his mind. I need his perspective. I, I need his heart. Because I got situations and circumstances and people and problems and mountains in my life that, I mean, I know it here that he's more than able. But I fear I don't really know that he is able. Because the churning and the the pressure and the anxiety and the, the confusion bespeaks of a lack of trust on Jesus. Rather than a confident boldness that says, oh, my God who was able to go beyond, beyond, over and above and beyond is more than capable for this situation. See, I want that to be the tone of my life. I want to walk into every situation and circumstance and just say, watch out, buddy. I know my Jesus. Is that your attitude? Or do you need to embrace Jesus this morning to say, Jesus, I, I need you. I've got stuff in my life that I need you to demonstrate yourself through it. Bravehearted Voices was brought to you by the creative team at BraveheartedChristian.com, offering short films, books, articles, sermons, and yes, even podcasts like this one to build you strong in the person of Jesus Christ. At Bravehearted Christian, the agenda is to bring back the stuff of old. You know, the sort of Christianity that is lived out with a gusto of heaven, is rarely politically and or socially correct, and actually practically works. Visit BraveheartedChristian.com to learn more.